little bit of change on Sunday mornings. I'm reading, I'm going to read from the King James, but they're going to put the new King James on the screen for that's a little bit easier for you to follow. And number two, we're not going to read the entirety of my scripture text. We're only reading just one verse. And then we'll kind of uh, pick it back up here in just a little while. It's in the 15th verse of the 35th chapter of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Here the author says, and Jacob called the name of the place. Read these words very carefully. Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him Bethel. Bethel. And so today I want to talk to you about this subject matter. This is the place. Just remember that. This is the place. Let's ask God to elaborate and help us to understand and to grow in our understanding of this subject matter. Father, I love you today, and I'm humbled by this privileged opportunity that I have. And I ask today in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit of God would work in a powerful way. Today, God, the Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts and our imagination. I prayed in private. I'll pray it publicly. Let preaching be easy in this house today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're trying to cool it off in here just a little bit. It's the time of year where you won't want the air on on tomorrow. <laughs> I want to take you on a journey if I can. Obviously, this text of Scripture that we read just a moment ago tag teams with last week's message. If you were not here, I want to encourage you to use one of the tools that we have available for you, and that's our podcast. The podcasts are all, all of our sermons, and Wednesday nights are placed online. Does it cost you anything? With the click of a button, and you can go and you can gain. If you miss a message or you want to go back and listen again, um, I want to encourage you to do so. So certainly I'm tag-teaming with that and trying to fulfill what I left out and left undone last week. But I want to take you into the, my world again for just a little while, and I value the local church. Oh. I do. I appreciate each and every one of you and your call to worship. And I, I thank God for this water in this cup, too. But I want to take you into the order of corporate worship, if I can, within not necessarily beginning in Judaism, but all the way back to the roots of our faith, all the way back to the Jewish culture, all the way back even before anybody was called a Jew. It began with Abraham. Certainly, it was from there. That we see God bringing a corporate people. I just believe in the corporate body. I know you can worship God privately. I know you can worship God driving down the road or walking down the road or at home in your living room or any such thing. But when I study the word of God, I see that God, who we choose to worship today, is a God that calls his people to him collectively to worship him and to give him glory that his blessing might be upon the people of God, and we might learn to encourage and lift up one another. I think that's why the writer of the book of Hebrews said, to forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. Wouldn't it be a shame to be a part of that group, the manner of some? I don't want that to be labeled over me. I want to be one of those that's found. He said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but all the more... As you see the day approaching, you become exhorters or encouragers to one another. And when I began to think about that in my study, I was going back to a certain thought, and I'm going to bring you there shortly, but I said, let me trace this once again, though I'm familiar with it. I love sometimes to walk down a familiar path and see new insight, don't you? Something that, hey, I've trod this path previously, 
but maybe I didn't catch this, or maybe I didn't see this. And I was reminded when the children of Israel had come out. And remember, we were talking last week about Jacob, and Jacob is the grandson of the patriarch Abraham. And at that time, God's dealing with mankind was exclusively through a family. He didn't necessarily have a people, but he had a family. And so, but he sent his family down to Egypt, and for 400 years they incubated within the womb of Egypt until they were brought out by his own strong and mighty hand. And a nation of, or excuse me, a, a family of 70 persons became a nation of perhaps 2 million plus men, women, and children. And so when Moses is giving instruction to Israel during what you and I know as the Exodus journey, there's one particular narrative that I'll draw your attention to real quickly today. It's found close to the end of the 40 years of wandering. And at the 40 years of, of the wandering in the wilderness, as they are on the precipice of the promised land, the place that they had only envisioned in their dreams, the place they had only envisioned when they closed their eyes and thought and pondered. The only people that had seen it were the 12 spies. Even Moses himself had never actually visited or seen into the promised land, the 12 spies. And unfortunately, 10 of the spies had returned 40 years earlier with a negative report. And only two, Joshua and Caleb, had told a, a faith-filled report that encouraged the people to believe. And as a result of their unbelief, that 40 years of wandering has now come to a close. And there's a new generation of people. And Moses is giving his final dialogue. We know this is the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is when Moses is looking back and he's drawing conclusions and looking at examples of the things that have happened during the 40 years. And it's kind of like this final charge, this final exhortation. There's always such depth and truth into it. But my attention was drawn to the 12th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. And I'm not going to go there on the screen, but I'm telling you so you can read it on your own. Moses is giving strict instruction for corporate worship because he uses this language. He said, you shall not do the way everybody's doing right now, which everybody's doing this. He said, the way every man is doing what's right in his own eyes. But God said, notice these words, and you'll read this on your own. I think it's the fifth verse of the 12th chapter. But he said, when you come into the land, he said, there's a place that I'm going to choose. He said, there's a place, he said, I'm going to choose and he said, I'm going to put my name there. And he said, when I put my name there, he said, then wherever you're at in the land of Israel, he said, that I want you to journey there. That's where he gave them instruction that at least three times a year, every male from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south of ancient Israel would have to journey with their families collectively. And they would go to the place where God put his name. It was there that they had hoped for corporate worship to be established. And you and I are familiar with that during the days of the Exodus, the worship of God and the tool and the means that they used to worship God was called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was transitionary. It was something that could be built and put up. It was tents. It was pegs. It was staves. It was uh, surrounded by curtains. It was something that whenever God said, you've been here long enough that I want you to move, they could gather everybody together, the Levites and the priesthood, and they could fold the thing up. And they could then begin to move, and they could move to the new location. But certainly God was being prophetic that there was going to come a day in which his, the worship and the collective worship of the people of ancient Israel was not going to be transitioned, but it was going to be stationary. There was going to be not just a place, but the place. Remember that. Not just any place, but the place that God's chosen. And so when we read the Scriptures... 
We find that there was an anticipation, but for hundreds of years during the time of the judges, there was no official setting up of the place. What I mean by that is from the time of the conquest of Canaan, when Joshua and the armies go about beginning to take this land and that land and this city and this place, we find no exhortation, no word from God saying this is the place. They had prophets, they had judges, they had spiritual leaders, but nobody. they're still using the tabernacle. And there was a strategic and a a very powerful moment, and oddly enough, it comes to us in the life of King David. And it came at a very unique moment in his life. It's almost like it's forgotten at that time. And you may remember David for just a minute. I'm going into, I'm going into the history of corporate worship if I can. But maybe this is crack cocaine for me. I get high on this. I, I, I feel something in this. And I see David. And I, because David was the one that longed for the presence of God. You know, he had taken the throne from his of his spiritual father Saul who God had rent the kingdom from his hand and took it from that lineage of Benjamin and gave it over to the lineage of Judah and David had a passion for the house of God as a matter of fact when he took the walled city of Jerusalem one of the first things that he did was he said I gotta have the ark Everybody knows what the ark is. That was the ark of the covenant, the abiding presence of God where God abode. He sat between the mercy seat, between the, or on the mercy seat between the cherubims. The glory of God did abide right there. And, and David said, for 20 years we haven't sought God through the means of the ark. He said, I've got to have it. And you're familiar how that they sent the Levites and they brought the ark of God on their second attempt out of the house of Obed-Edom. And they brought it to a tent that David had pitched for the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, in what we know as Zion. And it was there that they could worship God. But the tabernacle was still set up in a previous location. So you had the altar, and you had the brazen laver, and you had the rest of the furniture of the tabernacle in one location, but you had the Ark of the Covenant in the tent that David had pitched for it. And that's the way it was at this particular very symbolic and strategic moment in the life of David when David made a tragic mistake. David made a tragic mistake in 1 Chronicles chapter number 21, and he chose to number the people of Israel. And God had warned him, God had warned him, because you know why they numbered Israel typically? They numbered, people numbered to see how many men that could draw sword in their army. And Joab, the, the, the leader of the army, tried to warn David and say, if God's on our side, does it really matter how many armed men we have? But David was duped by the enemy And he continued to census the people. He found the number of people dwelling in the land, but it grieved the heart of God, and God promised judgment. He even gave David a choice of judgment, and the third choice is that he would suffer three days, three days judgment by the hand of God. And the Bible tells us that an angel was seen in Jerusalem, and there there was a pestilence that broke out upon the people, and people are literally dying. And David doesn't know what to do. He's afraid. He's afraid to leave Jerusalem to go to the tabernacle and offer sacrifice. For there he might, could petition God to stop the, to, the, the slaughter of the innocents. And the Bible says that he lifts his eyes up. He lifts his eyes up there in Jerusalem. And he sees the angel of God standing over a threshing floor. A threshing floor uh, that owned, was owned by a Jebusite, Orna the Jebusite. And when David saw that, there was something that sparked inside of him. And he said, this is, there's, this is no coincidence. And so he goes to Orna and he says, I want to buy this threshing floor. 
because the prophetic word has come to me that I'm to build an altar there and I'm going to sacrifice to God and the, in, in hopes that he'll stop his judgment on the people. And Ornan said, I'll give it to you. And matter of fact, we'll kill the oxen and we'll take all the wood that, we're, that I've got here and we'll burn it and we'll offer to sacrifice to God. And David said, I appreciate your heart in this, Ornan. He said, but God forbid that I would offer God something that doesn't cost me something. I've got to, it's got to cost me something. I've got to feel the stick. If it's really sacrifice, if it's really going to be sacrifice, I've got to feel it in my own life. So he paid Orna for the land, and then the Bible says he built an altar. And when he built an altar, listen to this, when he built an altar, something happened that had not happened in ancient Israel for hundreds of years. From the time that they had, they had set up or erected the tabernacle, he built a sacrifice, he put the animal on the sacrifice, but he didn't light a sacrifice. God, the fire of God fell out of heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And when David saw it, he said, this is the place. Now, see, what you got to do if you're a student of the Word of God, you got to catch the words that are used in Scripture. Moses said it was going to be the place. Nobody's mentioned it for hundreds of years. But if you will go back and you'll read in 1 Chronicles chapter number 21, David used the same word. He said, this is the place. And then in chapter 22, verse number 1, he said, and he added to the place, he said, this is the house of God. When it was nothing more than a threshing floor, when wheat waved in the wind as the wind blew across it, as laborers worked in the field, David saw something beyond it. He saw more than a field. He saw that this is the house of God. This is the place where men and women are going to come from all walks of life. And it was David that said, I was glad. He said it prophetically. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. When the tribes of Israel come together, when men and women of all walks of life get in their vehicles and they make their way from their homes, uh, from their solitary abodes uh, unto a place dedicated to God. David said, I can't stand the joy in my heart. I get excited. Would to God I was preaching to a church today that had the same passion, that got up this morning and said, I can't wait for them to strike the first chord. I can't wait to have an opportunity to lift my hands. I can't wait to lift up my voice. Glory to God that God gave me a place. And not just any place, but the place to worship the Lord. And these words are echoed by King. I'm preaching myself happy today. But I got up here happy today. Solomon said when he prayed, remember when Solomon built the temple, David laid up the resources, but he didn't build the temple. But Solomon, his son, built the temple, and then he prayed a dedicating prayer. You can read it in 1 Kings chapter number 8, but here's what Solomon says. Solomon said, Lord, let thine eyes be always open. To this place. And let your ears always be open, God, to the prayer that's made in this place. What a powerful exhortation to us. This is the place. That place was known to the children of Israel as the temple. That first temple was called Solomon's Temple. It's very interesting to study the history of it in the days of the kings of Israel. Because it's a picture of of the failures of men. 
It's a picture of what and how good life can be when you're serving God in the place. But it can also show you how distorted and dysfunctional the wickedness of sin when you fail to honor God and truly keep Him center in your life. And so we see seasons of revival, like in the days of Hezekiah and Josiah. We also see seasons of apathy. And beyond apathy, complacency, beyond complacency, idolatry. Until the heart of God was broken and the place was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. But then the narrative switches. The days of Nehemiah and Ezra, there's a renewed interest in the place. The people that were captive and taken to foreign lands, they were not settled in those foreign lands because worship to God was in the place. No matter where they were, there was still something unsettled. Many of them have repented of the sins of their fathers, and they longed to come back. And the scripture in the book of Ezra, in the book of Nehemiah, and some of the minor prophets tells us the journey of ancient Israel led first by their governor Zerubbabel, and then by others as well as they sought to reestablish their residency in Jerusalem, and also the starting of rebuilding of the, tab- or the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And then we close the narrative in the book of Malachi, And then we open it fresh again in the Gospels. 400 years of human history have passed. And there's been a lot of things that have taken place during that time period. And then you and I get the first-hand look at the rebuilt temple. Now it's no longer known as Solomon's temple. It's known as Herod's temple because King Herod, yes, the wicked King Herod, had used his prominence and he had actually beautified the temple. And it was a beautiful edifice, though it was to a degree still yet distorted. And then we see a roving rabbi who comes to us first from Galilee and then out of the deserts where he had disappeared for 40 days. No one knew anything about him other than John had said, this is the Lamb, who was John, the prophet, the first prophetic voice since the closing of the Old Testament canon when Malachi's voice had thundered across Israel. Now John's preaching with boldness in his heart. And one day as he's baptizing men and women into a new movement of reformation, All of a sudden, here comes a lone, solitary figure, and he walks into the swirling waters of the Jordan River, and there, Jesus of Nazareth is baptized. You remember that account. When he was baptized in water, the Bible says that when he came up out of the water, suddenly the heavens opened, and the Spirit of God, like a dove, descended and lit upon Jesus. I heard a preacher of old days said, I'll tell you who that dove was. He said, that was the very dove that Noah had let out of the ark. Because when you read the account of Noah letting a dove out of the ark, it, re- it went out and never returned. And I heard the old preacher say, because it was looking for the Messiah, and it had passed all the Old Testament kings, and all the Old Testament priests, and all the Old Testament prophets. But on that day, glory to God, there was the one he had been anticipating, Yeshua of Nazareth, and he lit upon him, and the glory of God was upon Jesus. And then he disappeared. For 40 days, nobody knew. But when he came down from the mountains out of the Judean wilderness, he was filled with the Holy Ghost. And he began to do the works of his father. And one of the things that grieved him was the neglect of the house of God. And when we see that narrative, you see the mild, compassionate Jesus, fervent over the house of the Lord. How that he cleansed the temple on two separate occasions, overthrowing the money changers, loosing some of the animals that were being uh, as merchandise in the house of God. And he said, take these things away. Make not my, that was what he called it. He called it my father's, are y'all out there? He called it my father's house. Make not my father's house 
a house of merchandise, but let it be a house of prayer. But that same Jesus that was so passionate about the, ha- the temple of God, there's some things that begin to happen. First of all, the very week of his death, he prophesied the destruction of the edifice that the people were so fond of. As if there was something happening in the heavenlies. As if there was something moving. First that which is natural. And then that was spiritual. And then on his death, when he gave up the ghost on Calvary and he pillowed his head in death, the Bible says that the veil, the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place as if the unseen hands of an invisible God had reached down into his own house and caught hold of the six-inch thick walls of the, of, the, of the fabric that separated the holy and the most holy, and God tore it from top to bottom. As if God said, there's not going to be anything that separates me from my people any longer. Now, when you study Scripture a little bit farther, then you'll begin to see that the place, the house, was still being used by different people groups. The Jews still worshiped there, but also did the Christians. It was our own Dr. Brassville that told us in his book, The Pilgrimage to Pentecost, that it was our, it's his belief and many other scholars like him that believe that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit did not take place in a remote little room like the upper room where the disciples had taken of the, uh, of the Passover, the night of Jesus' betrayal, but most likely in the courts of the house. In the, perhaps even the outer court, it was there that the Spirit of God fell on the worshipers of Jesus as they waited for something that they didn't even know what it would be, and it was the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. So God was still fulfilling prophetic promise towards the house. We even see the first century Jews still continuing to worship through the means and the model of the tabernacle, or now, excuse me, the temple. But you see theologically some shifting starting to take place. Let me give you a few examples. Are y'all out there today? And the scripture begins to tell us as Peter's writing his epistle, and he's thinking about the people of God. And all of a sudden, he's not thinking about a physical location. He's not thinking about stone walls of a building or an edifice that was built by Solomon, rebuilt by the Jews, rededicated by Herod. He's not thinking about that because Peter said these words, You also, as lively stones, are being built up for a spiritual house to worship God. A shift is starting to take place in the minds of the church because up until that time, everything was associated with Jerusalem. Everything was associated with the temple. But then perhaps the greatest revelation came to us by the name of a man called Saul, who is now called Paul. For Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, listen what he would write. Well, actually, let me back up. He first said in 1 Corinthians, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Those are words that were unfamiliar to that first century Jew. Paul is writing by divine revelation. And so in Ephesians chapter number 2, listen to this very carefully. The apostle Paul uses the analogy of the temple in Jerusalem to teach a divine spiritual principle. And Paul said this. He said, there is a middle wall of partition that's broken down. What was that? The wall of partition that separated the Jew from the Gentile. Where the Gentile could only go so far. God said, through Christ... Man, I get excited when I think about these things. Through Christ, that middle wall of partition, Paul said, notice these words, of two he made one. Of two people groups, God has made one. 
They're his own children. And you and I, both Jew and Gentile, you know what we are called? We are called the household of God. We are called the household of God. He would also write that this building that is being built together for an habitation of God. Think about the temple and the glory and the edifice. And you think about the stones and the structure and the gold and everything that's with the temple. Now God said this building, listen what he said through the apostles writing. He said this building is being fitly framed together. God said I'm building a new edifice in the earth. This time it's not made of mortar. It's not made of stone. It's not made of a kyle wood. It's not made of cedar planks. But it's made of men and women who have been called out by an omnipotent God who's called us out of darkness and brought us into His glorious light. And He chooses today to be worshipped out of the recesses of our heart and in united fellowship together. And I know you can worship God privately. Please do so. I know you can worship God in the solitude of your own living room. But let me tell you, it dims in comparison that when we come together with the saints of God, fitly framed together, united together in corporate voice, and many voices become one voice that we lift up in adoration and praise to our God. Peter, or excuse me, Paul said in 2 Timothy, he said, you are vessels in a great house. In 1 Timothy 3, he said, if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how you ought to, listen to this, that thou mayest know how you ought to behave thyself in the house of God. Which is, listen to this, because I'm going to ask you a question here in a moment. Paul said this, 1 Timothy 3 and 15. He said, the house of God is the church of the living God. It's the pillar and the ground of the truth. And I wrote it this way, and I want to ask you this today. Has that place become this place has that place where God met corporately with his people hundreds of years ago have been and been consummated in the person of Christ to now wherever the people of God come together in corporate agreement Jesus had foretold it where two or three of you are gathered together so that means this morning whether or not you had the freedom to walk into this place because of the faithful service of our veterans today. And you and I could boldly and proudly stand in this room. Or whether or not you are hiding in China because of the new uh, persecution upon the church in China. Or whether you're in Iran. Did you know the fastest growing Pentecostal church in the world is in Iran today? Where men and women, when they make a commitment to Christ, they know that it may cost them their life or they may be ostracized from their family. But wherever you gather at, no matter what your building looks like, whether it's a storefront or the, main, or the beautiful, magnificent, magnificent edifices that we see today, it matters not. Wherever God's people come together, it's my belief that that place has become this place. And the glory that was seen in that place can be seen in this place if we'll honor the God of the house. He said, I dwell in the praises of my people. It's a powerful thing that we see in Scripture. And I'll give you one last passage, and I'm going to omit one of the largest. I'll have to pick this other part up to validate this at a later date and time. But Paul said this, when you come together, therefore, into one place. When Paul was writing to the church, the early church, he said, the church is coming together. He says, coming together in one place. And so today, 
I'm going to bring this and I'm going to wrap it around and tie it into something for just a minute if I can. Here's my belief. Dr. Russell, you said I could disciple people from the pulpit. I'm going to do it right now. It's my belief that the church is the house of God. That we're not bound to a, we're not bound to a stonewalled city in Jerusalem. We're not bound to the restrictions and the, we're not bound to, oh, I've got it. It's, let me tell you what I believe today. I believe God is sovereign over his house. And wherever he chooses to place you, wherever he chooses to place you, then that's where you need to be. The people, the fellowship, the doctrine, the worship, the pastor, whoever it is, you will never be at peace in your life because you're not at the place God's called you to. See, it's one thing to occasionally visit the church. God's not called you to occasionally visit. Come on, He's called you to be a part of the place. He's called you to add your agreement to men and women of like precious faith. He's called you to be a pillar in the house of God. The entire page of notes that I omitted was to take you into the book of Revelation. Where in the book of Revelation, God told the church of the first century, He said, I'll put my name on you right there. Matter of fact, I'll give you a new name. I'll give you a new stone. He said, and I'll make you a pillar in the house of God. And I think that speaks to us today because there's a prophetic word that I'm going to close this message with today. And this is, I don't believe you can ever be fully at peace in your heart and life if you're a child of God, if you are not divinely and uniquely connected to men and women of like precious faith where together our corporate worship becomes the place that was prophesied thousands of years earlier. The place. That's my belief today. I want to take you back into the life of one of the patriarchs again in closing this message. I know those are the words that some of you wait for every week when I say I'm about to close. But also know that this you've learned that I'm a liar. (laughs) Or I can't tell time equally as much as you are. Or you can The patriarch that I closed the message with that I spoke to you about last week. The patriarch Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. But doesn't seem, when we looked at his life initially, doesn't seem to come from the same, the same character as this distinguished and extinguished Abraham. Or even Isaac, the offspring of promise. The one that Abraham and Sarah had waited for until they were in their aged 90s and 100 years before God gave them the hope of their heart. But Jacob's name meant a deceiver. Anybody remember that? He was a supplanter. He had reached up at childbirth and caught hold of his elder brother Esau's heel. And it was prophetic of his life. He would seek to supplant Esau, and he did on two separate occasions. It's a powerful story. If you didn't hear it live and in person, go to the podcast. And I concluded the message by bringing you to the place called Peniel. It wasn't called Peniel. It was just the ford of the river Jabbok that, fl- that fed, excuse me, didn't feed into Jordan. It flowed out of Jordan. And when he had crossed over with his family, he was making a journey back to the land of his promise because God had promised him to go back. God had exhorted him to go back. He had been 20 years in his uncle Laban's house where he had obtained his wives and his families. He had crossed the ford with nothing but a staff and a small bag of provisions. And now he had two companies. He had wives, children. He had servants, men servants, maid servants, camels, sheep, goats. He had become wealthy. God had blessed him. But he was unsettled. 
And so on that night with his children and family across the ford, an angel of God had appeared nowhere, out of nowhere, and he wrestled to the degree that he had held so tightly that he forced the angel to touch him supernaturally and dislodged him in his hip. He had sought God for blessing. Does anybody remember that message that I preached to you last week? And I told you that Jacob walked with the limp the rest of his life. But where I stop the story, I'm going to close this week with that story because it bears witness with us today and it will tie this whole thing together if you will allow me to in closing this message. He did meet his brother Esau and much to his surprise, God had softened the heart of Esau. Sometimes, how you know, God will go right in front of you and he'll take care of your greatest fears if we'll just trust him. And he did. But notice this, if you read the 33rd chapter and the 34th chapter of the book of Genesis, he doesn't go where perhaps you think he should, but he journeys from Esau to a place called Shechem. Now, Shechem was historic because it was one of the first places that his father Abraham had journeyed to when he came into the promised land. His father Abraham had built an altar there, and the Bible says that he does, Jacob does build an altar at Shechem. But there's confusion at Shechem. His own sons... Have, con- have conflict with the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants want to intermarry, and, and, and Jacob's sons don't want to intermarry. And there's some confusion, and ultimately there's some uh, betrayal, and ultimately there's people that die. They die, and there's blood that's spilled, and Jacob's afraid, and he's, he doesn't know what to do. His sons are at odds with him. He doesn't know what the answer. And the Bible tells us this, that God comes to him in a dream. And in Genesis chapter 35, verse number 1, in the dream, the Lord says these words. I want you to hear them. I preach this multiple times in my preaching career. And every time I say those words, it bears witness in my spirit because the Spirit of God said to Jacob, the son of the patriarch, who's having contention in his family, he said, Jacob, you're dwelling at Shechem. Shechem means shoulder. You're living on the side of the hill. I didn't call you to live on the side of the hill. I called you to build your family and build your life on a rock that can never be moved. Get up, Jacob, and go back to the place where I called you. Where is that place? Go back to Bethel. Go back to the place of my first interaction with you. Go back where I experienced Expose my glory to you. What does Bethel mean to us today? It means the house of God. Go back. Take your family. Take your wives. Take your children. Take everything. And go back to Bethel and dwell right there. Glory to God. What a movement could happen in our culture today. Joe, it was just a little snapshot last week of what could happen in Heber Springs if the Jacobs that are living in Shechem would just hear the voice of the Spirit to say, I'm not settled in Shechem. I can't find peace in Shechem. There's contention in my family in Shechem. But I heard God say, go back to Bethel, and there I'll meet with you again, fresh and new. Glory to God. And I see this in Scripture unfolding by the word of the Lord. And the Bible says that Jacob... Uh, told his family. And I'll tell you what, if you were to give me more time, I would tell you what could bring about a revival in our community. You know what would bring about a revival? If the lazy, deadbeat dads would get up this morning 
and shake off their shake off their slumber from sitting in front of college football all day yesterday or out in the deer woods all day yesterday and they'd get up and they'd wipe it all away and they'd say I want to get my wife and my children and no matter what we're going through and no matter the strife and the contention and the darkness and the struggle and we're going to make our way back to the house of God where God appears to us we would see a revival that would resound for generations to come if men would hear the voice of God speaking to them. Now, I'm not in any wise trying to omit the matriarchs among us. I'm saying in one sense, though, that the men are more negligent than the women are. Jacob, I love what he did. He turned to his teenagers. He said, I need something from you. Let me have that and that. I need the Xbox. I need that, this, that. Take that poster down. Man, I'm preaching good, even though you're not shouting me down. Give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that. And he took it, and he buried it under a tree. Glory to God. We need to bury some things under a tree. We need to bury them at a base of a hill called Calvary, of a mountain called Golgotha, of a tree called the cross. And there, trust God's grace and His forgiveness. And Jacob journeys back with his family to Bethel. And there at Bethel, guess what happens? The God that appeared to him. This is why we believe in the presence of a living God. The God that appeared to him in his dream. That God appears to him again and speaks to him and said, Jacob, that is your name. But I told you several months ago, I'm not going to call you Jacob anymore. Stop letting yourself be called Jacob. Everybody knows you as Jacob, but I know you as Israel. How many of you know God will speak life over you when you are in darkness? God will speak blessing when you are in the confusion and contention. Because God will call things that be not as though they were. He'll bring them to pass by a prophetic word. And God spoke it over Jacob. And God said, I'm going to bless you. I want you to dwell at Bethel. And he said, because out of your wounds... Out of your wives' wombs, out of your loins, out of your... He said, they're going to come kings and princes. There's going to be a whole lineage of men and women of faith. And they're going to worship God because you got up and you made your way back to Bethel and you chose to dwell there. I've told this church family since I've been the pastor and I am truly about to close. I believe in generational blessing. You can believe in generational curse and you can talk about the demon and the devil and you can talk about strongholds and addictions all you want to. But give me the cross and give me the blood and give me a new creature in Christ Jesus and you take away the old and make all things new. I'll get up in the morning and say, as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we're going to make our journey every Sunday. Whether you want to come or not, whether shame strikes the right chord, whether the lights are on or off, It matters not. I'm going to gather with whoever will gather because there's a great God that deserves all my praise. I've seen this blessing too deep. I've seen this blessing too wide not to come to this house and worship the Lord and give Him praise. I love to get up and go to Bethel every day because I believe that place has become this place. That's what I believe today. Now I'm going to show you as I close. Look at the last verse. 15th verse. And Jacob called the name of 
Read it with me. Jacob called the name of what? Of the place. The place. God, Jacob called it Bethel. Is the house of God. So I titled this message today. As I titled it, I said, this is the place. It's the place that God's chosen. It's the place that God's chosen. No matter where you are, God calls you to a place. You're in the military, about to move, go anywhere around the world. If you're a child of God, God's called you to a place. Job takes you. Can't find work in Hebrew Springs. Got to go to Little Rock. Got to go to some urban city. God's called you to a place. His desire is for you to dwell there. His desire is for you to worship, to serve, and to connect, and to fellowship with men and women of like precious faith as y'all stand up with me today. And I want to put this here as I close because I'm going to give you an invitation right now. It's 12, 11. I've probably preached a long time. But I can't apologize for it because preaching has been good in this house today. Listen very carefully. Anyone, listen, I'm going to say this with, with grace and not with condemnation in my heart. But anyone who professes faith in Christ and is not at the place God chose for them is outside of the will of God. Did you hear that? Can I read it to you one more time? Listen, anyone who professes faith in Christ and is not at the place God chose for them is outside of the will of God for their life. I'm not saying God's led every one of you to this place, but I am telling you this, if he has, then you need to be here. We'll never be what God's called us to be without you. There'll always be deficiencies in our fellowship. As long as all you're doing is visiting. But God told Jacob, I want you to dwell there. Because that place has become this place. So I'm going to ask you today, if you would, this morning. Who will rise up and go up to Bethel? Who will rise up and say, I'm going to go to Bethel? What does that mean? Who will say, Pastor, I've just kind of been just occasionally visiting. But I feel a comp- a compulsion in my heart today. Something is pulling me, pulling me. This is the house of God. This is the place God's chosen for me. If that's you today, Daryl, do you mind to join me? On, I see you in the back back there. I usually can't see until I do like that. See you back there if you would. You know, in days gone by, church family, every invitation that was given at this moment was about accepting Christ. And I don't want to ever omit that opportunity. That's even been prayed for by Benjamin earlier. I don't want to ever not. But you know, I've also found that sometimes the invitation needs to be to the people of God who are just dwelling outside. They're in Shechem. They're on the side of the hill. When God said, I didn't call you to live on the side of the hill. I called you to live on the rock. Come on. Our heads are bowed and our eyes closed. We're going to have some judgment day honor.